Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Today, in our feature, Enrique Sanz from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about recycling challenges. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. At least half a dozen utilities have released plans to get to net zero emissions, or close to it, by 2050. Now a Michigan company has said that it will get to net zero emissions by 2040, the fastest timetable of any major utility in the country. Currently, Michigan derives its electricity primarily from three sources, coal, natural gas, and nuclear. Thus, the state has a long way to go to achieve its goal of net zero emissions. Consumers Energy has pledged to build no new fossil fuel power plants. Patty Pope, Consumers Energy President and CEO, said in a statement, quote, Consumers Energy is proud to do our part to protect the planet with our new goal, and we look forward to working with Michigan residents to help them understand and do their part so we can accomplish great things together, end quote. The company is now saying it can get to net zero by 2040 because its remaining emissions would be small enough that they could be offset through a variety of methods, including storing carbon, underground, capturing methane from landfills, and planting trees. The plan is to convert to wind, solar, battery storage, and programs that will reduce electricity consumption. The company also will no longer use nuclear power because the Palisades Nuclear Generating Station, which is owned by another company, sells power to consumers. Duke Energy also has a net zero plan. Critics doubt their plan because Duke intends to make substantial investments in new natural gas plants. A new plant is usually constructed for a 40-year lifetime. The company also will not be closing other fossil fuel plants quickly enough. The Trump administration has formally revised a proposal that would significantly restrict the type of research that can be used to draft environmental and public health regulations, a measure that experts say amounts to one of the government's most far-reaching restrictions on science. Given the revisions made public, scientists warned that the new standards would let the federal government dismiss or downplay some of the most important environmental research of the past decades. That includes research that definitively linked air pollution to premature deaths. The proposal is one of dozens of environmental protection rollbacks that the Trump administration is scrambling to finalize before the presidential election in November. It caps more than three years of efforts to dilute scientific research, especially on climate change and air pollution, which has underpinned rules that the fossil fuel industry calls burdensome. 
Andrew R. Wheeler, the administrator of the EPA, said the proposed regulation was an effort to bring greater transparency to government research. Quote, I am committed to ensuring that the science underlying EPA's actions is of the highest quality, end quote, he said in a statement. Once the rule is finalized, he added, it, quote, will ensure that all pivotal studies underpinning significant regulatory actions at the EPA, regardless of their source, are available for transparent review by qualified scientists, end quote. Under the new version of the plan, the EPA, when writing or revising environmental regulations, would have to give greater weight to research in which the underlying data are available to be retested. Critics of the proposal, including the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the world's largest general scientific society, argue that the administration's real goal is to raise suspicions about the bedrock studies that helped establish modern regulations governing clean air and water. Seminal research that has definitively linked polluted air to premature deaths, like a 1993 Harvard University report known as the Six City Study, often persuaded participants to offer personal health information and other private data by extending strict confidentiality. Last fall, we reported on a peaceful protest highlighting the urgency of the global climate emergency in which 22 Greenpeace activists climbed the Fred Hartman Bridge in Baton, Texas and suspended themselves to dramatically challenge the fossil fuel industry. Every day, 700,000 barrels of oil pass through the Houston chip channel under the bridge. If the fossil fuel industry has its way, the amount will expand to at least 2 million barrels. The activists formed a blockade, shutting down the largest fossil fuel thoroughfare in the United States for 18 hours. 31 people then faced felony charges under Texas's new so-called critical infrastructure law, an anti-protest statute that attempts to criminally prosecute and severely punish people for disturbing fossil fuel infrastructure. The good news is that in March, a grand jury refused to issue felony indictments against the activists, so none were indicted on the critical infrastructure charge. However, some of the news isn't so good. Twenty-five misdemeanor indictments were issued for obstructing a highway or other passageway. They could carry fines of up to $2,000, jail time of up to 180 days. Twenty-two of those indicted for the misdemeanors also face a separate federal misdemeanor charge for blocking a navigable waterway. Greenpeace argues that all the charges should be dismissed immediately. There's already been movement on those charges, with the felonies dropped to misdemeanors. A jury has awarded $250 million in punitive damages to Bill Bader, a Campbell, Missouri peach farmer who argued that the weed killer, dicamba, made by Bayer, Monsanto, and BASF, drifted from other farms and severely damaged his trees. Bader Farms is one of the largest peach farms in Missouri, and Bader's attorneys argued that his trees wouldn't survive the dicamba exposure. Many reports of dicamba drift have been made in Indiana, Arkansas, Iowa, and Illinois also. Linda Wells, Pesticide Action Network Organizing Director, commented on the case, quote, The internal 
Monsanto, now Bayer documents, uncovered in this case show that the company released a highly destructive and intentionally untested product on the market, end quote. With Bader's legal win, things are looking good for the over 140 other farmers suing the corporations over dicamba drift. Things aren't looking so good for Bayer Monsanto. The company is already dealing with tens of thousands of lawsuits claiming that exposure to its herbicide Roundup causes cancer. Sea Shepherd ships patrol the oceans in search of poachers. On March 4th, World Wildlife Day, Sea Shepherd crews came upon a group of skiffs fishing illegally inside the Vaquita Refuge, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Mexico's upper gulf of California. The Vaquita porpoise is the world's most endangered marine mammal, with fewer than 20 alive, and the illegal fishing with gill nets is the primary threat to their survival. The Sea Shepherd ships encountered two skiffs retrieving a gill net in this no-fishing zone and approached the vessels. Mexican authorities on board the Sea Shepherd's MV Sharpie asked the skiffs to remove the net from the refuge, but the skiffs refused. Four more skiffs arrived, and the group launched an organized attack surrounding the MV Sharpie, the Sea Shepherd's MV Farley Moat, and military ships. Some 25 skiffs swarmed the Sea Shepherd vessels, trying to force the Sea Shepherd vessels from the area by throwing objects. Then the poachers unsuccessfully launched a Molotov cocktail at the MV Sharpie. The Sea Shepherd ships carried out anti-piracy procedures. As the poachers tried to light a second Molotov cocktail, military personnel on board the MV Sharpie fired a warning shot. The skiffs disbanded and the attack ended. This was the third time poachers attacked Sea Shepherd ships in the Vaquita Refuge. Butterflies and bees, ants and beetles, cockroaches, and other insects help humans. Just sample the ways these animals enable life as we know it. They pollinate crops, break down waste, and support entire ecosystems. Yet many insects around the world are in decline. Writing in the journal Biological Conservation, more than two dozen scientists from countries around the world are warning of a wave of insect extinctions and urging swift steps to curb the crisis. In a paper sketching solutions, the scientists say that to save insects, we must give them the space they need to survive in the face of climate change. Livable, interconnected habitats flush with a rich diversity of plant and animal life. Ensuring that insects have room to thrive means setting aside local habitat, including parks, gardens, roadsides, and the edges of farm fields. It also entails protecting continent-scale migratory passages, like the corridor that monarch butterflies traverse from Minnesota to Mexico. Not just any areas will do, the researchers caution. Insects need quality space, too. The closer an area is to the condition it was in before humans altered it for the worse, the better. Quote, we need to move the needle of novel landscapes towards one of greater ecological integrity and more complex interaction networks, end quote, said Michael Samways, one of the paper's authors and an insect conservationist at South Africa's Stellenbosch University. Space that's free from pollution and invasive species with diverse plant life and a varied landscape will best help insects, and that includes enough room for the six-legged critters to find food, seek mates, and just rest.
Our changing climate pushes many insects to evolve, move, or die, a dynamic that often puts them up against the extensive transformation humans have wrought on Earth's surface. Habitat fragmentation exacerbates the threat by limiting insects' ability to traverse the landscape separating them from more suitable surroundings. But with quality space that's connected by conservation corridors and other adequate habitat, the researchers write, insects can leave enough healthy offspring to sustain their species. Toxic pollution levels fell significantly in China between January and February, and scientists think the new coronavirus, or COVID-19, is a large part of the reason why. Satellite data collected by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and the European Space Agency show a steep decline in nitrogen dioxide levels over China between January 1st to the 20th and February 10th to the 25th. The two periods coincide with the time before and after Chinese officials implemented a quarantine in Wuhan, the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak. This is the first time such a dramatic drop-off over such a wide area for a specific event has been observed. Nitrogen dioxide is a noxious gas emitted by cars, power plants, and factories. Short-term exposure can aggravate the symptoms of asthma, and longer-term exposure can cause people to develop asthma and be more vulnerable to respiratory infections, according to the EPA. The decline in emissions over China came after January 20th, by which point transit in and out of Wuhan had been halted and local businesses had been shuttered. The decline in pollution levels began over Wuhan and then spread across the country, Nitrogen dioxide levels have fallen before, but never so steeply and widely. Scientists also usually observed a decline in Chinese pollution levels at the end of January and beginning of February when businesses and factories closed for the Lunar New Year. However, the pollution levels usually rise again when the celebration is over, but this year they have not. People around the world are celebrating some recent major wins over the fossil fuel industry. In Canada's tar sands region, the largest ever proposed open pit mine has been canceled. The company, Tech Resources, said that uncertainty over climate policy and protests in Canada convinced them to pull out. Massive resistance came from Indigenous Climate Action, 350 Canada, and many other groups. In the Philippines, a ban on all new coal-fired power plant projects in the province Antique has passed after three years of anti-coal protests in the region. The provincial board said the reason for the ban was the damaging health effects of coal. Last, a federal court stopped what would have been Latin America's largest open-pit coal mine in Brazil after a diverse campaign of marches, public education, and advocacy the court said the coal company's failure to consult the local indigenous population was a major factor. Now the family farmers, indigenous communities, and fishers, plus the 4.5 million people of the nearby state capital, Porta Alegre, are safe. The mine would have emitted 4.5 gigatons of carbon dioxide over its lifetime. In Canada, rail blockades, sabotage, and demonstrations are taking place as people are organizing to support the Wet'suwet'en First Nation as its members defend their unceded land against multiple oil and gas companies trying to build pipelines through it. The Wet'suwet'en people 
are also having to defend themselves against the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, who are actively supporting the company's endeavors. After a raid and arrests of protesters by the RMPC, the rail blockages began, along with highway shutdowns throughout the country, causing major disruptions to industry and the economy. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been taking the side of industry and pushing extractive projects through. Laws have been passed that, like similar ones in the U.S. sponsored by oil and gas companies, attempt to quell resistance to the pipelines by increasing the penalties for blocking so-called critical infrastructure. In late February, the RCMP raided the main organizers of the rail blockages in indigenous territory, spurring more blockades. People have been undertaking mobile blockades to prevent trains from moving and to evade police. And now for our feature, we will hear Enrique Sens from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about recycling challenges. Did you know most of the things you think are recycled actually aren't? That's right. Many of the recyclable goods we put into our recycling bins are sent to get recycled but are not accepted for many reasons. It could be that you didn't wash out that peanut butter jar well enough, which could contaminate the recycling process. Or it could be because of China. The country stopped accepting many categories of recyclable plastics. Now, instead of being recycled abroad, they're crowding our landfills. So what do we do now? The uh, Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change will now come to order. Congress is taking a crack at figuring out how to address what they're calling America's plastic waste crisis. The Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change held a hearing where they called up recycling and product reuse experts and the trade groups that represent plastic makers. Illinois Representative John Shimka summed up the hearing. Recycling is an issue that I believe makes great sense for both the environmental and economic perspective. We've heard a lot about the demise of recycling in America after China ended imports of recyclables from the U.S. The recycling industry, however, remains extremely important to the U.S. economy. Additionally, recycling conserves our natural resources and permits obsolete, previously used surplus and byproduct materials to be processed into specific commodities that are used to manufacture new products. In 2018 alone, more than 120 million metric tons of scrap material was processed in the United States for reuse, generating $109.78 billion in economic activity and directly employing 164,000 Americans. Is recycling perfect? Absolutely not. Are some recycling sectors better positioned than others? Of course they are. Are global markets and individual commodity prices determinative on whether certain items are recycled and the quality of those products? Of course. Is there room for improved education, infrastructure, and research? Certainly there is. These are all worthy subjects that I hope we can get to today. Witness testimony fell into one of two camps. They either said recycling was only a partial solution to the country's waste problem, or that recycling is the best option we have. University of Georgia professor of engineering Jenna Jambeck was the first to testify. The best thing you can do environmentally is not produce waste in the first place. No matter if material is reused or recycled, it all takes effort, energy, and often transportation, so not having to manage waste is, at all is best. I say this for us to keep in mind as we discuss how we manage our waste today, the, the logistics, the practicalities, the human dimension, and expenses associated with it, that not producing it in the first place should be our primary goal. But the reality is that even as we move towards a circular materials management, which is a critical step towards circular economy, we will still have ways to manage, and right now the U.S. leads the world with waste generation. 
Globally, 2 billion metric tons of waste is generated. In the U.S., the per-person waste generation is two to six times the waste generation of many countries around the world. While we're the third most populous country, we only have 4% of the population, but we generate 16% of the world's waste stream. Next to speak was Lynn Hoffman, co-president of Minneapolis, Minnesota-based Eureka Recycling, a nonprofit recycling organization. Hoffman told subcommittee members that Congress should reprioritize where it's spending much-needed dollars. For example, number one, PET bottles, like water and soda bottles, highly recyclable and in theory in great demand from brands who are making new public comments to use more recycled PET in their packaging. Yet right now, only one in 10 PET bottles are recycled in the U.S., and prices for recycling PET on the market remain far too low because we're competing with cheap, heavily subsidized virgin ethylene derived from fracking and other extraction. Compare PET bottles to other plastic that have less or no value, no end markets, and major challenges to collect and sort, such as number six polystyrene or number three PVC. Rather than spend the billions of dollars needed up front to create entirely new systems to recycle these items, a less costly and more effective approach would involve bans and fees to encourage the reduction, redesign, and phase out of the most problematic materials. Keith Chrisman, managing director of the Plastic Markets American Chemistry Council, told Congress that plastics industry supports recycling to create a circular economy. The benefits of plastics are diminished when it ends up in the environment. Plastics are critical to modern society, from lightweight car parts that save energy, to insulating our offices and homes, to delivering essential health care, to preserving food and preventing food waste. Plastics play an essential role in our society. Unquestionably, China's ban on imports of plastic and other recyclables has caused significant short-term disruption to our recycling systems. But this disruption has also created a new opportunity to create a circular economy for plastics and other materials. ACC and our members have committed to help create this circular economy. For example, we have committed to reusing, recycling, and recovering all plastic packaging by 2040. William Johnson, chief lobbyist for the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries, said the public shouldn't lose faith in recycling. Because of the challenges being experienced in the residential recycling infrastructure, we are seeing a growing loss of confidence in recycling on the part of the general public, which is a great concern to all of us in the recycling industry. First, recycling does work, although it is not without challenges. Our country's recycling infrastructure processes more than 138 million tons of recyclables annually. However, residential recycling only is about 30% of that. The other 70% comes from recycling of commercial and industrial materials that tends to be cleaner. Second, there is no one singular solution to the challenges we are experiencing in the residential recycling infrastructure. The residential recycling chain and associated infrastructure in the U.S. is a complex system which is driven by market demand but saddled with a supply chain that is generally not linked to current market conditions. The witnesses did not agree on an end goal, but said fixing the nation's recycling policy is worth the effort. For EcoReport, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. Offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. 
Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming local events. MCIRS is offering a Take Control workshop in partnership with Ivy Tech Lifelong Learning on Saturday, March 21st from 1 to 4 p.m. at Karst Farm Park located at 2450 South Endright Road in Bloomington. Learn how to reduce invasive species on your property. Register at https colon slash slash bit.ly slash two capital U, capital G, small w, capital Q, capital K, small a. The website is case-sensitive. Sassafras Audubon Society will host its 2020 Spring Duck and Donuts event on Saturday, March 21st at Stillwater Marsh near Lake Monroe. Learn tips on how to identify waterfowl while enjoying a cup of coffee and a donut. Learn more about reptiles and amphibians during Monroe County School Spring Break. Plan to attend an indoor presentation at the Paintown State Recreation Area on Wednesday, March 18th, beginning at 11 a.m. for a Slithering Snakes program. Sign up by March 16th at http colon slash slash bit.ly.springherbs-snakes. The Friends of Springmill State Park invite you to attend their annual meeting in the Oak Room at the Springmill Inn at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, March 17th. The group works to preserve, restore, and interpret the natural and cultural heritage of the park. It's St. Patrick's Day, so make sure you wear green. Brown County State Park continues their winter hike series with a curious quarry hike on Saturday, March 14th from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to carpool to the Horse Trail A. This is the longest hike in the series at four miles long. The route is rugged and slopey, so dress accordingly. Time will be allowed for exploring the quarry before heading back. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializes in, in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. 
Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sanz. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 